0: Hello, welcome to the legends of King Arthur and his knights. Chapter 52, The Real Arthur As we know, the historical record for the real King Arthur is sketchy at best. The sources which we looked at in the last chapter are patchy and contradictory. Sadly, we will not come to a conclusion here as to who the real Arthur actually was. It's quite likely that the legend of a single man is actually a hybrid of a few different men probably not all from the relevant time. So, who on our tale are real historical figures? Well, Hengist and Horsa are known to have existed, and there is enough evidence that Vortigern and Aurelius Ambrosius, or Ambrosianus, were real people. Vortigern, though, may not be a name, but a title, and it's known that a man known by this name led the forces in southern England and Wales soon after the Romans departed Britain, he invited Hengist and his Saxons to help him in return for land in Kent, probably the Isle of Thanet. Together, Vortigern and Hengist defeated the marauding Picts and others. We know that after a period of calm, Vortigern was attacked from the west by a shadowy figure called Ambrosianus. During this fighting, he was also set upon by his old ally, Hengist. Many of his supporters were killed. Sadly, we know virtually nothing about Ambrosianus. His campaigns were not designed to kick the Saxons and their Germanic allies out of Britain. There were too many of them, and they were settled in a large number of areas. Ambrosius sought to confine the Saxons to certain areas and put down any concerted attacks. In this, he was mostly successful. His campaigns against the Saxons and other Germanic settlers, who we should really now call the English, kept the relative peace going. Sometime in the 470s or 480s, Ambrosianus died. It's Ambrosianus who's the real hero of Gildas's tale. Gildas, as we know, makes no mention of Arthur at all. He relates Britain's defeat of the Saxons at the Battle of Baden, but amazingly neglects to tell us who the victorious commander was. Gildas does help us date the Battle of Baden at around 518, which fits in well with other accounts. The Welsh annals give us much the same date. More and more settlers arrived from Germany in the nearby areas, A leader was needed to fight back for the British. And here is where we see the only real possibilities for the historical placement of King Arthur. It's Nennius who gives us the only account of Arthur's battles. There's no mention of Uther Pendragon, or of Arthur being related to Ambrosianus. This appears to have been the figment of Geoffrey of Monmouth's imagination. It's not clear from the writings who Arthur actually was. We don't know whether he's supposed to have been a king or a warlord. Nennius lists 12 battles fought by Arthur. They seem not to be simply battles against the Saxons, but also against other tribes. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to work out where these battles were fought. The place names listed bear little resemblance to the place names we know today. The last of the 12 battles, though, is one which was recorded elsewhere. It's fought on Mount Baden. Nennius tells us that 960 men fell in one charge from Arthur, and that the Saxons were utterly defeated. The only problem with the account ascribed to Nennius is that the date of the battle is earlier, probably between 493 and 497. Still, it seems pretty certain that the sources are referring to the same battle. Interestingly, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle makes no mention of a terrible defeat for the Saxons, so the reality even of this battle cannot be certain. The Chronicle, though, is a Saxon document, and so the lack of record of a bad defeat is somewhat unsurprising. The sketchy known details of the time suggest that Britain was ruled by a large number of kings and princes, each lording over a relatively small area. Arthur, if Nennius is to be believed, brought them together and helped fight in unison. This fits in with Mallory's, and others, description of Arthur uniting the various kings of Britain. Baden is known to have been a watershed battle between the Britons and the Saxons. It seems that a long period of peace followed it, and this, we presume, is the time of the glory days of Arthur's kingdom. The location of the Battle of Baden is another one of those little historical conundrums that has never been adequately solved. It's thought that Baden is Old British for Bath, and so maybe the city of Bath was the site of the battle. Gildas, though, refers to Baden Hill, and Bath is not built on a hill. Many other possible sites have been suggested and backed up by linguistic and archaeological evidence. The truth is, though, we just don't know. By the time Geoffrey of Monmouth was writing his work, Baden was gone, and the battle he describes is called the Battle of Bath. Geoffrey also mentions King Loth of Lothian, who's the husband of Arthur's sister, and the father of two men called Gawain and Mordred. Mordred receives his first mention in the Welsh Annals, and it's very brief. This chronicle tells us that in 539 there was a battle of Camlan, at which Arthur and Medrute fell. Medrout clearly has morphed into Mordred. The Battle of Camlan is mentioned in some sources, including the Welsh Annals, but not in others, particularly Nennius. Now, he could be suffering from the same malady as the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, namely he didn't want to record a defeat for his side, in this case the British. Again, the location of this battle is a matter of some debate. Geoffrey places it near Camelford in Cornwall. Others identify the location as by the River Cam in Somerset. Some even propose Camelon near Falkirk in Scotland. There are a few places in Wales called Camlan today. Again, we don't really know. We don't even have much of an idea if the Battle of Camlan was a real event. A few years after the battle was supposed to have taken place, the Saxons had taken over southern Britain, and the race known as the English began its inexorable rise. Whatever had been built up, either by Arthur or another British leader was lost. The Battle of Camlan is mentioned in the Welsh Triads. These are traditional medieval manuscripts which tell of the mythology, folklore and occasionally history of Wales and the surrounding areas. In those early tales the battle erupts out of nothing and is called a futile battle. By the time Geoffrey of Monmouth got hold of it though, it had turned into a battle for the kingdom after Mordred's usurpation of his uncle's realm. And that my friends is pretty much it. There are very few other historical references to Arthur, placing him in his supposed spot in history. The legend of the man probably grew up from a number of sources and took on the attributes of a number of men. Quite a few of these men were not around at the time of Arthur, but elements of their characters probably combined to create a legend. So this brings us back to Geoffrey of Monmouth. His account, the Historia Regum Britanniae, was written in the first half of the 11th century, It describes the history of the rulers of the island of Britain from alleged settlers from Troy through the Roman period, the Arthurian period and ends with the death of King Cadwallader in the 7th century. Geoffrey claimed he took the information for his book from an ancient book in the British language that told in orderly fashion the deeds of all the kings of Britain, given to him by Walter, Archdeacon of Oxford. Geoffrey's work is presented as history but was known, even at the time, to be primarily the creation of its writer. In 1190, a more reliable scholar called William of Newburgh wrote a genuine history. He was most dismissive of Geoffrey's tale. It's quite clear that everything this man wrote about Arthur and his successors, or indeed about his predecessors from Vortigern onwards, was made up, partly by himself and partly by others, he says. Then he goes further, saying that Geoffrey made it up, either from an inordinate love of lying or for the sake of pleasing the British people. This, though, is a bit odd. Geoffrey was writing in Norman times, during the reigns of King Henry I and King Stephen. Most of the population of England was, at this time, of German descent, Angles, Saxons and others. Arthur was a British hero, neither Norman nor English. The remaining strongholds of the genuinely British people were in the southwest of England and in Wales. At this time, Arthur really should have been a Welsh hero, and maybe a somewhat subversive one. The story, though, seemed to appeal to Saxons and Normans alike. It's after this that the French courtly romances were written, followed, in 1485, by Mallory's epic. And thus the legend of King Arthur was in full swing. What Geoffrey made up, and what he gleaned from previous legends and tales, is uncertain. So where do we go next? We've looked at the historical context and the birth of the legend. How do we seek the real Arthur? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but we probably won't. The legends and tales of knightly chivalry are so removed from historical fact that there is little point in trying to pinpoint one man who is the real King Arthur. All we can do is identify people from history, most of them shadowy, uncertain figures, who might have contributed a bit of themselves to the legend. Fortunately, there are a number of these. Some are known to have existed at the right time. Some are thought to have existed about the right time, and some are known to have existed but not at the right time. This, though, is how legends are created. Folk memories a difficult age. By the time of the 12th century, it would be hard for writers to distinguish what's been passed down for 500 years from what's been passed down for 200 years. Hence the creation of composite heroes, derived from figures who lived in different eras. Many writers have tried to find a single Arthur. We won't do that here. We'll list some of the likely candidates for part of Arthur and note which ones others have tried to identify as the single source of the legend. So let's start with a number of people who are actually called Arthur or something close in his book, A brief History of King Arthur, Mike Ashley argues that Arthuris apmuig is the most plausible candidate whose name bears some resemblance to Arthur. Arthuis was a king of Gwent. One of the points which counts heavily against him though is that he was in power in the 7th century, not the late 5th or early 6th. By our reckoning though this doesn't really matter. Handed down tales will very rarely come armed with exact dates. It's possible that the dates are better matched. This age in history is infuriating. Maybe Arthuis lived at a slightly earlier time. Importantly, if the dates are correct, Arthwis lived in Gwent only a century or so before the Welsh annals, and the Welsh legends contained in the Mabinogion were written down. He would have been fresher in the memory than characters that existed in the time that Arthur is supposed to have ruled. Arthwis had a grandson, also called Arthwis, and it's possible that Arthur is an amalgam of these. There was a battle, called the Battle of Tintern Ford, fought around these times between the Welsh and the Saxons, the battle resulted in a victory for the Welsh against their English invaders, such that South Wales was not troubled for some considerable time. This represents one of the last of the great vi- victories of the Welsh, or Britons, against the Saxons. Thus it resonates with the Battle of Baden. So there may be some food for the legend from Arthuris and or his grandson. There are a few other candidates called Arthur, or again something similar. Arthur ap Pedder was the grandson of Vortipore and a king of Duffid. He fought against the men of Ireland and his exploits could be part of the legend of King Arthur. Arphael and Einath was a king of Glamorgan. He ruled lands around Muneth baidan which has been identified by some as Mount Baden. Little more is known. David F. Carroll and others, name Artur Mac Aydane, a war leader who led the Scotti of Delriata in a war against the Picts. He was killed in battle in 582. There are a few other possible candidates, but the historical record is almost absent, and there's little chance of identifying any real deeds which match those of the legend. So we need to look at other possibilities, whose names are not Arthur. Some think that Ambrosianus, otherwise known as Ambrosius Aurelianus, is the true Arthur, and that his deeds are the seeds for the legend of the great king. It's not until Geoffrey of Monmouth's fictional history that Ambrosius is stated to be Arthur's uncle. It's perfectly possible that a single character has diverged into two, just as it is that Arthur is an amalgam of real people. There are examples of this all-over legend, one of them from the Arthurian tale. In the earlier French tales, the characters of Gareth and Gaheris did not exist separately, Gareth's third brother is known as Gehurit, and there is no other before Mordred. Mallory invented most of the tales of Sir Gareth, and quite possibly the character himself. If the dates are correct, and of course there's very little chance of that, then Ambrosius would have to have been the leader or king of the British for over 30 years for him to have still been in charge at the Battle of Baden. He would have been well over 80 at the Battle of Camlan, even given the most favourable timescale. Ambrosius certainly did campaign extensively against the Ca- Saxons, and his exploits may well have morphed with those of other commanders to become the basis for some of the historical exploits identified with Arthur. Mike Ashley identifies a number of other candidates from British stock who may have contributed to the legend. Cadel and Rioactus, likely grandsons of Vortigern, could have been alive at the time of Baden and are mentioned in some records. Vortipur of Daphid was a king at the time, and certainly could have fought at Baden, but Gildas criticises him extensively, and it's unlikely he would have been so critical of a victor. The problem with all of these candidates, and a number of others, is that so little is known, and less believed, that they cannot be seriously linked with the legendary king. There are two more figures who need to be considered as possible sources for some of the fragments of Arthur. Reamathus is a definite historical figure. He's listed as King of the Britons and lived in the mid to late 5th century. He is known to have existed as he is written about by the Byzantine scholar Jordanes. It's mentioned that a Roman diplomat called Apollinaris asked for his help to quell a rebellion in what is now Brittany in northern France. He also says that one of the last Western Roman emperors, Anthemius, requested that Riamathus send troops to help him in a campaign against the Goths. Geoffrey Ash is the champion of Riomathus as the real Arthur. He notes that Arthur also travelled to continental Europe to fight, so here reality does match the legend. Mallory, though, has Arthur fighting against Rome, not supporting the Emperor, so this doesn't really match exactly. Riomathus, though, is the most plausible candidate from around the time that Arthur is supposed to have lived, so it's certainly possible that his exploits form part of the legendary tales. We have to go back even further for our last potential candidate. Lucius Artorius Castus was a Roman soldier from the late 2nd and early 3rd century. The proposed link with the Arthurian legend is that he led forces against the Jeziges and the Sarmatians, probably during the wars fought against these tribes by the Emperor Marcus Aurelius. He was then sent back to Britain with a group of Sarmatian soldiers to protect the area around Hadrian's Wall. It is proposed that Castus's campaigns in the north mirror the twelve battles described by Nennius. It's also proposed that the legend of Excalibur's return to the lake comes from a Sarmatian custom whereby a dead warrior's sword would be flung into the sea after his death. There is even a story of one warrior asking his last surviving comrade to launch his blade into the ocean only for the man to fail to do this twice and lie about the outcome. This is akin to Arthur's asking of Bedivere to dispose of Excalibur. Clearly, Artorius Castus cannot be the original Arthur, but it is perfectly possible that these folk-tales about him have merged with tales of others to arrive at the composite figure of legend. There is much fun to be had searching for the real Arthur, the man behind the legend. Until and unless we unearth some incontrovertible new historical documents, though, there will be no clear answer. The fact that the legendary king is a mixture of traits and actions from many disparate sources does not detract from the majesty of the tale. King Arthur and his knights have entertained and enthralled for hundreds of years, and will hopefully continue to do so for hundreds more. And that, in the end, is all that really matters. Thank you for listening to The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights. I truly hope that you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed writing and recording it. The Legends of King Arthur may be over, but this is not the end of the podcast. Over the next couple of weeks, the show will change its name to The Myths and Legends of Europe, and you'll see some new artwork. More exciting than this, though, in two weeks' time we'll begin our next legend, a retelling of the tale of Robin Hood of Sherwood. So please, please do join me for this exciting next step. And if you do, I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks.